What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, I'm talking about fun, and I'm talking to a master of game design, a guy that really knows how to find the fun and bring it to life, James Ernest from Cheap Ass Games. I've been wanting to interview James for years. He's one of the best designers in the world. He created one of my family's favorite games, which is Kill Dr. Lucky. And so a while back, I reached out to James about contributing to my new book project, the book called Find the Fun, which is currently on Kickstarter. And he provided just some excellent, excellent answers about how designers can find fun in their own game designs. And so I, I invited him on the show and it, it did not disappoint. This has definitely been one of the most enjoyable conversations I've ever had in 300 plus episodes of doing this. And it was so great to talk to someone with three decades of experience designing, publishing, bringing games to life. And I just had a lot of fun with it. James has some really wonderful nuggets of wisdom. And I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. We talk about how to go beyond a game that just works and gets into that place of actually being fun. We talk about how to identify when playtesters are having fun. The most challenging aspects of bringing fun to life through your mechanisms and through your player experience and a whole lot more. In other news, today's episode is sponsored by Lucky Cat, a game in which one to five players compete to lead a once thriving kingdom of ambitious merchant cats. Will you play it safe, pay taxes, and carefully reconstruct the lost pieces of ancient Lucky Cat statues? Or will you take calculated risks, amass hidden wealth, and outsmart your rivals? The game includes a cozy solo campaign thanks to input from Board Game Design Lab members, and it's been playtested endlessly from Protospiel to Essenspiel. So if you're looking for a game with chonky dice and adorable cat images, be sure to check out Lucky Cat for only $29 on Kickstarter starting on August 1st. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome James Ernest. All right, James. So I reached out to you recently to help out with this book I've been working on called Find the Fun. And it's really a, a book about how to go from idea all the way to marketable product. And one of the main things to think about, if for new game designers especially, is creating something that's fun. Because a lot of times designers, they make something that works. You know, they play test it and they're like, hey, nothing is broken. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's fun or it's going to be a good product out in the marketplace that other people want to play. And so when you're thinking about the word fun in the context of board games, what does that mean? Do you have like a certain definition or a certain angle? What do you think? Yeah, there's it's a complicated word and there's a lot of definitions for it. Um, I think that my personal take is always trying to think of the product from the perspective of the player and from specifically from the perspective of the new player, because a game inventor will, and I, geez, I had this happen to me just yesterday. I'm working with a team of people for whom um, a game is a list of features and they're looking at a whole bunch of other games in the space and they're comparing their feature set to their, to the, to the other games feature sets and saying, see, we have a game because we have this feature from this game and this feature from this game. And I'm, I play the game and it's not fun, but that like, that doesn't enter into their thinking. And I think as when you're, when you're creating a game, it's easy to get trapped in the mindset of a game must exist. And this is how you make one and forget that someone else has to come to it fresh and like understand it and play it. And so, yeah, so, so it's always thinking of the product from the player's perspective, which sounds trite, but that's like, I'm amazed how few people actually do it. Raph Koster has a, a, a book called The Theory of Fun for Game Design. It's a, it's a hopefully you've read it uh, in preparation for writing your own. And he talks about how humans are hardwired to learn stuff. And, and so as long as you are getting something out of your interaction with a system that is like natural response. That's why people like to play games because they don't learn enough stuff in their everyday life. Right. Um, and my version of that is that fun is poking at a system and predicting what's going to happen. And usually, but not always being right. 
So that's what we're doing. We're messing with this podcast software and hoping that it does what we want. And it's, it's uh, entertaining because uh, we think we've got it figured out, but it keeps surprising us now and then. <laughs> yeah. And that's an interesting point though. Where does surprise play into that, right? So you said, you know, you're poking a system and then you a lot, most of the time get what you think is going to happen, but then sometimes you don't, right? Sometimes the dice... Well, it's, it's science, isn't it? Yeah. You make a prediction, you do an experiment, you get the result, right? That's the scientific method. And if you can't make any prediction at all, it's not fun because it, it's confusing. This is, this is Coster's bracketing system, is that if something is so confusing that you can't predict any results, it's not fun because no matter what you try, you don't know what's going to happen. And at the other end of the scale, it's boring if every prediction you make is correct. Like nobody needs to test you know, I, I'm not going to pull a random theory, but no, you know, things we all know, no one needs to run more experience, experiments to find out if apples fall from trees, right? We, we, we know that. Um, and so that is that the boring end of the spectrum and somewhere in the middle is this, this gray area where you can poke at a thing and see what happens, but make predictions about it and, and usually be right, or sometimes be right. You know, that's as long as it's not never and always you're in the, you're in the groove. And what people find fun about games is different people to people because I might be playing poker because I've never seen five cards before. And that's interesting. And I'm, I'm going to hope that I hit this flush and maybe I will, and maybe I won't. And I know what's going to happen, but someone at the same table is poking at people and seeing how they react and seeing if they can make them play badly by getting into their heads. And that's two different systems that work in the same game. And those people are having two completely different flavors of fun. Yeah, that's a really good point. And thinking through, okay, who is the target audience for your game? What what types of fun do they enjoy? And then how can you lean into that as much as possible? And so when you're designing a game, are you thinking about that like right at the beginning, ground zero, before you even get into the design space, uh, of, before you even start working on a game? I mean, I, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know what one should think of first, but I know that what one should always have in mind is the user's experience. Um, I've been working with a, I mean, I've, I've worked with so many teams who are and individuals as well, who they know they want to make a game and they know what features comprise a game, but they don't really know what experience they're trying to deliver. And so they deliver a sack full of parts and it's not a game and they don't know why. Um, I always try to think of a game as the player, the, the player's experience, the player's first time experience and the player's, you know, hundredth play as well. But it's all about what they get out of it. And I, it doesn't matter what I put into it. No one cares as much about the details of your game as you do. That's your job to make that invisible. They care about their experience to it. And as they unpack it and learn all the nuances of what the game can do, that should be a, a an experience of discovery and not just like executing a set of rules. I think that's the the fine line, right? For new designers, they come in, like I was saying earlier, they're like, hey, this works. It's like, yeah, but it's not fun. And so how do you do that? How do you go from the bag of parts to something that's almost magical? That's like, oh, this is really enjoyable. It's really hard to bring me into a project halfway. And again, I'm speaking about some current experience I'm having right now, but like I, my first reaction is to throw all those parts away. Like Okay, I know that I have all these tools, right? I, I we made some, we made some mechanics, and that's great. But let's start over and figure out what it is that we're actually trying to do, because from the the player's perspective, it's hard to see things from the player's perspective. You know, um, I, I I it's hard to also know whether your game is fun unless you're honest about the feedback that you get. So when you put a game in front of someone else. Uh, which people are re re reluctant to do, right? People who come to game design from other disciplines, I think they believe that they need to finish the painting before they can hang it. And game design is sort of unique in that, no, you actually have to show them the blank canvas <laughs> and say, I'm going to put a duck here. What do you think? And like, literally, that's really hard to do uh, if you're not used to it. But if you don't see what what people expect or, or, or hear from them, what they think is going to happen in your game, you can go a long way into the weeds and then build a thing you're you're too attached to to throw away. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite quotes is, you can't read the label from inside the bottle. And as game designers, <laughs> we are That's just like truth. right there on the inside and we're, we're staring as hard as we can at that label, but it we don't know. We can't see it from the other side. And I, I can tell you from personal experience over and over and over again, I have designed a game 
you know, not to completion, but gotten to a point where it works and I'm, I'm doing different things and mechanisms are playing off each other and combos and stuff like that. And I will sit there and think to myself, I think this is fun. Like I'm having fun. I'm enjoying this, but not until I sit down and I just watch somebody else play it. And then they have that reaction. I mean, okay, good. Or, oh, okay. Huh. And, but it really does require you to put it out there. Not only does it require you to put it in front of people, but it requires you to strip your ego. Um, because if you're not receptive to the actual feedback that you are getting, you cannot make the product any better. If I don't, I can't tell you the number of times I've had a designer show me a thing. I've had issues with how it works and he has responded, well, this maybe just isn't your kind of game. And I'm like, no, man, that's, that's not how you deal with this. Like, this is your one chance to get feedback from this player. Hear it, you know, don't just dismiss me as not in your target group. That's not useful. Even if I'm not in your target group, the feedback is still useful. So, so anyway, yeah, you got, you got to be receptive to it. And like you said, you can't read the label. If, if someone, if you put that label in front of someone who doesn't know how to read, then you're not going to get a lot of good feedback, but you're still going to get more than you can from inside the bottle. hundred percent. And also like, just because someone's not your target audience or whatever, like they could, they should still have moments of going, Ooh, that's fun. Like I'm not the kind of gamer that I want to sit down and play a three hour Euro experience or an eight hour twilight Imperium. That's just not my deal, but I've done those. I've played those games in the past, you know, doing favors for friends and things like that. And there are moments in the game where I'm like, Ooh, that's good. That's fun. Like that's an interesting thing to think about or interesting decision space. And so even though I'm not the demographic, I I can still, you know, if, if that was a prototype, I could still go, I'm not your person, but this right here, Ooh, that's really fun. And so to just dismiss somebody, you're, Again, you're letting ego creep in and you're going to miss some of the best parts of feedback and you're never going to probably never going to get to like the best experience of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And and, uh, you know, you learn as a designer to take the love and not the advice, uh, you know, to, to, you know, accept the candy, but you don't have to swallow it. What I'm saying is. Uh, I think Neil Gaiman says this, uh, that if someone tells you there is something wrong with your work they are right. And if they tell you how to fix it, they are wrong. Like you have to understand that you can watch someone not have fun. And that's hugely valuable. You can watch someone get frustrated, stuck, confused, bored, all of these things. That's hugely valuable. That's a good note. If you then have a conversation with them and they start riffing and telling you how to make it better, you can't take that advice at face value. You can still read what's under it and that's valuable, but like their suggestions are going to be terrible. That's okay. Like let them make the suggestions, but, but understand that what's really going on is there, there's a, something wrong with the game that they don't uh, understand what it is, especially don't know how to fix it. Yeah. I was talking to Rob Davio about this a while back and something he said that I thought was just such a good little nugget of wisdom, very much along the lines of what you're saying is like playtesters have a tendency to be able to know when something's wrong, but have no idea how to fix it. And so as a designer, the way you can level up in your designing and something you just grow with experience and, and, and your skill set is reading between the lines. And, you know, the player is saying, hey, I, I felt like I didn't have anything to do. I felt like this, that, and the other. But like reading between the lines, you're like, oh, I just need to give you more gold at the beginning of the game. I gave you five. I need to give you 15. And then you'll feel like the decision space opens up. But reading between the lines and like really figuring out, okay, what are they actually saying? And so have you found that to be the, the case in your designing journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it certainly de depends on who's playing, but if, if they're novice playtesters, like you want them to be regular gamers and gamers don't know how to build games. In fact, I, uh, I made a mistake fairly early in my career of, of getting a lot of like very detailed feedback from, from essentially a critic. He wasn't an inventor, but he was a critic. What he did was write about games. And his advice on how to fix stuff was totally useless, but I took it because I was like, well, you play a lot of games, you must know. So when I play with regular gamers, yeah, I, I, uh, I watch them play, I get the experience they're having, but I don't try to drill, drill too deep on methodology or, or implementation or fixes because that's not a language that they speak. But if I'm playing with designers, I have a regular designer group uh, who meet every two weeks in Seattle and those guys they see the matrix, they know nuts and bolts. And so when, when they have suggestions, I'm like, okay, good. Let's, let's do the line on this. What problem does this solve? How does this solve it? Like I can, I can do that, but it, it's gotta be someone who's, who's in that same space, who's done that design work. Yeah. hundred percent. So when you're watching play testers, what are you looking for? How do you know that a game is fun? Even before they tell you, what are the kind of things you notice? 
I don't know. That's so hard to generalize, but if they want to play it again, that's a pretty good, I, I, you know, I think there's a level of conversation about the rules that means they don't know the game very well yet. And then after that, there can be a level of conversation about the strategies that shows that they're actually enjoying themselves. If they're thinking about how to win instead of how to play, that's that means that they're actually having the fun of the game, right? If they start talking about good expansion cards or good things you could do to add stuff to the game, like it isn't because it's not good enough. It's because it's this sort of triggering their brain to like be creative and, and think about the game again. Um, I think of really good tentpole games as destinations and a destination is a place that you enjoy three times. You enjoy it before you go, you enjoy it while you're there and you enjoy it after you get home. You, you plan your trip to Disneyland. You, you figure what you're, what you're going to take and when it's what, what the weather's going to be like. And you think about it before you're there. And of course it's fun while you're there. That's almost a given. And then you have stories to tell and photographs at the end. When you're dedicated to a game, like a game like magic, the gathering, which is what I sort of grew up with. Um, all of these things are true. And that game has a, a one player experience of deck building that is sort of prep work for, for the, for the two player experience of, of the game, things to talk about, things to remember. It becomes a lifestyle. If it's that, that's, that's, that's higher than fun. That's like engrossing. That's addictive. Right. But, um, but on a micro level, if you have playtesters who are like, Hey, do you have that thing about London again? I would, I want to play that again. That's a, that's huge. Right. That's a that's a great sign that they that they want to they, that they've been thinking about it when they're not playing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so as far as feedback during the actual time at the end of the game, do you, first of all, do you even do that? Do you sit down like do you listen to people? Because Eric Lang, he got to a place where he doesn't even listen to anything. Like he he gathers all the data he needs watching, and then he doesn't even like ask questions at the end. He's like, all right, thank you all for playing. Have a great day. <laughs> And so do you, do you have those conversations? And if so, what are the questions you're asking to really try to hone in on? Is this, the yeah, experience I mean, I'm trying again, to it depends on, it depends on many factors, right? Who is the group? What is the game and at what stage is it? So at the very earliest stages, I'm workshopping ideas. I'm saying, Hey, would you play a game in the old West about an undertaker who's trying to keep a big, you know, big box uh, mortuary from moving in and killing all of the, of the townsfolk? Like, would you play that game? I don't have a mechanic. I have a theme. So that that's all after conversation because I pitched the idea to you and I'll talk about what you expect. And, um, you know, the game goes through phases. At a certain point, it, it you're fairly confident that you're not going to make fundamental changes to the mechanic anymore. And now you're like, did this card make sense? Did these rules say what, I, what they're supposed to say? And you can, yeah, once once the game is a known entity, you can probably learn most of what you need to know uh, during the play test, um, for just strictly from observation. But, uh, I'd say last time I did a, a big game test, I was at, I was at Rincon in Tucson a couple weeks ago, and I had a game called tomb of the ancients, which is an archeology span game. And yeah, I would talk about it a little bit beforehand. I'd watch people play and, uh, talk about it a little bit afterwards, you know, just a, a Q and a, to make sure that, they got out of it what I thought was in there. Gotcha. So I want to circle back to something you're talking about earlier with the idea of surprise, right? So people go into a game, kind of what you were saying, like they have the pre and then the during and then the post. And where does surprise play into that? And how do you kind of, what what levers are you pulling on? What knobs are you turning to increase surprise or decrease surprise, increase, you know, things happening like, oh man, I didn't expect that. Tell me how that all kind of plays into the design. Of well, I think, um, uh, I'm going to send you a, a link to a video, but there's a video of goats on a, on a metal sheet. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's, there's a, imagine a big metal sheet. It's standing up in an arch and the young kids are jumping up and knocking each other off and they're playing with this thing and it's bouncing around and they're, they're playing. This is fun. Right. And the old goat is sitting in the back, just watching it happen going, I've ugh, whatever I've been there. Like that's, that's a video of what fun is. And I try to think of that as a metaphor for how people are interacting with my game. If they are delighted by it because it can surprise them, they are enjoying it. And if they feel like it's not for them, they've seen it before or whatever, or their bones are just too old to climb up on the thing. Like whatever the reason, there's going to be people who are sitting to the side and, and not being impressed. I think the way you provide surprise is not just by randomly beating people with unexpected results, but um, but giving them 
I guess a little more agency or a little more, you have to opt into the chaos. Does that make sense? If chaos just hits you randomly, then it's painful. But if you can say, okay, I know that there's five points sitting here on this platform. And I know that inside this box is three to seven points. I choose the box, right? Um, the story that I tell about this in, in uh, design lectures is about the, the 520 bridge uh, in Seattle. I was driving home one day and I saw a sign that said, in 15 minutes, the bridge will be closed for half an hour, whatever. They're repairing something, whatever. The sign says, okay, you have 15 minutes to get to the bridge. And if you get there late, you're going to be stuck there for half an hour. So my options are to take the long way around um, or to take my chances with the bridge. But I know that I have that option. And so when I got to the bridge and got across, I was delighted, right? Uh, but I imagine the person in the car next to me who hadn't seen the sign having two very different possible outcomes. I could have either been delighted because I hit the bridge on time or been okay with what I lost and checked my email for, on my phone for half an hour. And that would have been fine too, because I saw the sign. And the guy who didn't see the sign was either going to cross the bridge like he expected to cross the bridge, or he was going to be surprised and pissed off because it was closed and nobody told him, right? And that's that's a metaphor. And that's, that's explaining your rules and explaining what the rules are inside that box helps people decide whether they want to take the chance or not instead of just like hitting them with it. Yeah, I love that. What would be your best advice along those lines in the rules, making it clear, making the the options of, like you said, you, you have five points on the platform or you have a three to seven chance over here, like making that clear for players going in so that they don't get unexpectedly surprised in, in a way that is not super fun. I mean, that's that's the that's the challenge of any game, any system like that. Um, I, I think generally speaking, it is always better to express a loss as a cost instead of, of a straight up loss. In other words, I, I paid this to have this result instead of the game took this away from me. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's one of the things that's, excuse me, just impossible to generalize. Um, I think that gambling is a good example of, of an opt-in cost. So, you know, here are games that are stripped down to their absolute fundamentals. They're accessible to everyone. Many actual gamers find them incredibly boring, but it's fascinating to me because obviously it's a very big money-making successful game, um, gambling in general, craps, slot machines, blackjack, poker, all of these things. Um, they are incredibly simple. And in terms of like craps, which is probably the simplest, well, or a roulette, something like that, um, people opt into that choice. You know, when you make a roulette bet, you know that your options are either going to be probably to lose $5 or possibly to lose two or three or five or 30 X, you know, what you bet, depending on what you placed on there. And, you know, you know that over the long term you will probably lose, but no one really cares. You know, they're there to have the entertainment of the risk. And, uh, most gamblers have a budget that they're willing to lose, but anyway, I'm, I'm off the weeds here, but, but that that's clear, right? Roulette is clear. Now, people are bad at math. I get that. But like people know what the possible results are. I'm either going to hit the, a number that's in the block that I bet on or I'm not. And the results are clear. It's not like there's a whole other wheel that the first wheel leads to that has results that are, you know, unpredictable. That doesn't that wouldn't make it more fun. Those games don't succeed. Uh, they're just too hard to understand. and too hard to predict. I mean, I guess if I was going to say slot machines are kind of that that slot machines have now evolved to a point where they're incredibly complicated and no one can really explain what's going on. But I think the proposition is still the same, like put coins in, get coins out, sometimes less, sometimes more repeat. Like that is still pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think like you're saying simple, but even the complicated games that I've played in the past, the really good ones, the twilight imperiums of the world that take forever to play, even still the systems inside the game like each individual one was fairly simple to understand. There might be a lot of them. And now you're trying to figure out, okay, how do they stack and do different things? But individually, they're not that challenging. You know, you don't have to pull out your calculator and figure things like you can go, okay, here are my two options here. Here's some two options, two or three options over there. Here's two or three over there. And now together, a lot to think about. But Or I could just take it individually and go, I want to do A, I want to do three, and I want to do blue. Let's see what happens. And so players can come into that and just start figuring things out. And so one thing, one thing I love about your games 
is the simplicity, right? The rules typically not very long, very easy to comprehend. I can play them with my kids. I was telling you before we started recording my daughter, one of her top three favorite games of all time is Kill Dr. Lucky. Uh, you know, I told her I was going to interview James Ernest and she was like, uh, who, who cares? I don't, I don't know who that is. And, and I was like, oh, he designed Kill Dr. Lucky. And she literally went <gasps> and like lost her mind. And she's like, oh, wow. And now she thinks I'm somebody because I'm talking to you today. So I appreciate you, you know, pushing me up higher on in her eyes. Uh, but she loves that game. And it literally taught me, you know, it took me three or four minutes to show her how to play. And then we've been, you know, messing around. And so, Let's talk about Kill Dr. Lucky, mainly so I can tell her about it and then she'll think I'm even cooler. But tell me like your design process for that game, the experience coming up with things, things you cut out. Give me kind of the big picture in turning that idea into something that was really, really fun. Well, I grew up playing traditional hobby games and I have always tried, by always I mean in most cases, <laughs> tried to make a game where the... Potential for strategy is is huge in comparison to the complexity of the rules. I want to play the game. I don't want to spend my experience learning the game. Or we talk about nose time. Uh, how much time does someone spend with their nose in the rule book? You know, let's let's keep this as short as we can. So, so you know, Doctor Lucky aside, I, I I grew up playing Scrabble and Pitch and you know Yahtzee and those incredibly simple, easy family games where there's a lot going on in some cases under the surface. So Kill Dr. Lucky was originally a title um, that, that the design process began with a notion of what it was, a, a mystery style game based on a murder mystery event where everyone in the house wanted to commit the murder. And this is familiar to the literature and it's the clue game is kind of like that. Everyone has a motive. Um, I had done a short story in college where everyone wanted to kill this, the same guy. And in that story, the lights just go down and they all just build a gallows in 30 seconds and they all hang in together, right? But in this game, okay, Kill Dr. Lucky is funny because we're all going to try and we're all going to fail because he's lucky, full stop. Like that's that was from the theme to the story of the game. We're going to try a lot and we're going to fail a lot. And the way you win is do it. Mechanically, that's a little tricky because you can't necessarily build to that conclusion. It's a it's a Boolean event. You're going to try and try and try. And every time you try and fail, you're going to be right back where you started. And so it took us years, actually, even after the initial launch of that game, to figure out a way to build strength through failure. Um, you know, in the current version of Kill Dr. Lucky, when you try to murder him and don't succeed, you get a permanent bonus to your strength. And so trying again is going to be easier and easier. You're leveling up, you're getting experience points, which is not a thing that was in the original build. Uh, the original build was more about timing and hoping that you were the person who picked the time when his luck had run out. Um, but that was a lot of deduction and there weren't even a lot of scaffolds there to help you do that deduction. It was a lot of guesswork, really. Um, so like over the time of that game's existence, we've managed to make it into a better game by saying, yes, you can build slowly towards this goal. You can level yourself up by doing the core behavior, by trying to kill him a lot, knowing that you're going to fail and saving up that energy. Yeah. And I've, I've played both versions. I played the original years and years and years ago, and it really, it was all about timing and really just hoping. And it was a lot of surprise when you, when you, won the game. But at the same time, um, I really prefer the newer version because it gets people acting much sooner. You don't get that like sitting on G, everybody waiting on O, who's going to act first kind of thing. No, it's like, I'm going to do this as quickly as I can because that's going to build me up and I'm going to have a much better chance later as the game progresses. And here's here's the kind of crazy thing. I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, years ago, when I first got into game design, just as a hobby, just as something to kind of take my mind off life and, and craziness, the first game I ever prototyped was based on Kill Dr. Lucky. Uh, I had played it. I had a lot of fun with it. And we had this running joke with my friend group that my best friend growing up, his dad worked for the power company, worked for the light department in our little town in Alabama. And he was always the guy that was going out after storms and fixing stuff and hanging Christmas lights, taking Christmas lights, that all that kind of thing. And so the local paper seemingly once every couple of weeks would have a picture of him on the front page doing something. 
And it was just this running joke that's like, does anybody else work at this place? Like, is he the only one? He's the only one ever in the bucket truck. And so I made this little game based on Kill Dr. Lucky that he was going around town. We had all these like town spaces on the board and he was fixing stuff and hanging Christmas lights, whatever. And then you were a photographer for the newspaper and it was your job to take his picture. So you were trying to like land in the same place and have cars and things to take his picture. And then whoever, you know, got his picture multiple, like there's a timer and it rounds. Like it wasn't just take one picture. So it was different enough where I was like, Hey, this is, you know, not exactly just a rethink, but, um, our, our, Newspaper was called The Outlook. And so the game was called Getting in the Outlook. And it was all about taking a picture of my, my friend's dad, dad, Johnny. And and anyway, and so it's kind of cool to come come full circle now, 15 years later or however long it's been to chat with you about this. And so tell me, tell me more about the design process. You talked about the thing you changed right there. Did the board, you know, was it smaller? Did it get bigger? Tell me anything else that you kind of have evolved. Yeah, I mean, I, I know more about, I guess, the, the changes from version one to the current version than I can remember about the initial design. The initial design phase was probably like three weeks. Um, this is before Cheap Ass Games existed. This is the year that we came up with Cheap Ass Games. And so Kill Dr. Lucky existed first as a pitch. Um, someone took the the idea to the Gamma Trade Show and pitched it to Darwin Bromley as an aside. And he was like, I would buy that game. And so I heard that from my friend who went and I was like, well, then I should probably make that game. And then by the end of that year, I knew that I wanted to do cheap ass games. And I knew that Dr. Lucky was the best of the several games that were in development. So it became sort of our lead title and, and, and whatnot. I think that the original game had a lot of wacky surprise crazy stuff in it because at the time i was willing to believe that games like that are just like that and sometimes you just get hurt and like i i didn't have any testers who were going to dissuade me of that and it was just kind of like they were frustrated from time to time about how this game played out and we would all just kind of shake our heads and say well games be like that and that was the end of it right and you know, I, I know more than that now. And I know that games do not actually be like that. And that it's, while it's fun to have chaos and randomness and, you know, these things help balance, level the playing field and all of this, like there's still different ways to implement that chaos that are more and less conducive to a good experience. I don't want to spend a whole game building a perfect, uh, you know, racer and then have it crash as soon as it comes out of the gate because games be like that. Like I want to know, Either I, I want it to crash before I build it, if that makes any sense, or once I build it, I want it to. I want that investment to to pay off, um, and and so yeah, my games don't quite be like that anymore. We just redid Biting Off Heads. I don't know if you know that game. Um, Biting Off Heads is a dinosaur chase game. It's a it's a it's a silly romp, rolling dice and and attacking each other and sending each other back to start like in, per, in perpetuity. Um, it was fine and it was popular popular. And so we never bothered to change it, but it's been 25 years now and I'm a much better game designer. So I took that thing back to the lab and made a much better version of it where uh, along with other things. So you can imagine in, in a game where I can land on you and send you back to start that it's possible that the game will never end. And because of specific rules in that game, it was possible for players to kill themselves to get access to spaces where they could shoot at the people in the front knock them back to the start and the game would literally like never end. Like as long as people were willing not to try to win themselves, but only to keep others from winning. Oh, well games be like that. No, not today. Um, what I did in the, in the rebuild of biting off heads was I figured out that my, my, my real sort of underlying design goal was to make sure that the heat was always rising. And what I mean by that metaphor is, the average player distance to finish is always getting smaller. So when I throw a rock at you from the starting space in the original game, I would knock you back to start. And here we are right where we started again, right in the new game, I switch places with you. And so you're back at start, but I'm right next to the, to the finish. And so the average player position has not gone back. That means the game actually trends to a conclusion. And it sounds silly to talk about it in, in, in this context of this game, but in general, it's, it's a it's a good game design principle to engineer a trend to conclusion. If the game tends to end, it's better than if the game can go on forever. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also going back to what you're talking about earlier, in that people hate to lose something, right? They would much rather. Uh, what's the old quote? People hate to lose more than they like to win, 
right? That negative feeling is greater than any positive feeling. And so anything as a game designer, well, you and can that's, do. Well, that, that's ahead. the difference, but that, that's how you differentiate the uh, recontextualized loss as, as a cost. Yeah. Because I may hate to lose unexpectedly more than I uh, uh, like to win, but I'm also willing to pay the cost of a risk that I understand. And so that a lot of that is just framing. Yeah, definitely. And when the game takes something away from you, especially out of nowhere, you know, you turned over an event card and now you lost 10 resources. Like why? Because I happen to be the one to turn over the card. And then my buddy, he turns over a card and gains 10 resources. That's a pretty big swing. That's not super fun. And he's maybe having a little bit of fun. That kind of engineering has been in the DNA of board games for hundreds of years. Like literally, you know, roll a die and see if you go forward or backward is like what games were. Prior to Monopoly, you know, Monopoly is a track game with random plus and minus events because it was based on a whole family of track games with random plus and minus events that sort of also gave rise to Candyland and Shoots and Ladders and, you know, that variety of game. That's like, that's that's what a game is. From the perspective of those designers, that's what a game is. And so that biased randomness that picks someone to hate is is engineered into the games as kind of a leveling factor when in fact you don't you don't need that at all. You can have randomness that actually serves everyone equally, which is strange to say, but um, but still balances the uh, the the outcomes. Like uh, you just you just have to build it right. Yeah, definitely. There's a game I bought for my son. He's four years old and he loves trucks and monster trucks. And I found this game from the eighties called Crash Canyon. And it's this massive, you know, molded thing. And it's these little monster trucks and they go around the board and it's literally just roll and move. But it also has a die in there that has a star. And the star meant you could move somebody else and you could push them back. And the way the game works is like you could literally push them back one space and then that causes them to fall into the canyon. And now they're like 20 spaces back. Like this just and it's not it's not fun, especially if if I'm playing the game, (laughs) if I'm playing the game to win, like I'm pushing my four year old's truck into the canyon. You know what I mean? Like he's got to earn this. And I was like, (laughs) it's just it's just not good game design for nowadays. And so I changed that rule to any time you roll the star, which is the one. Instead of moving one, not super fun, it's exploding. So now you can roll it again. So you got a one. Oh, you rolled a one again. That's two. Roll it again. Oh, now you rolled a six. Now you just moved eight. So one, that's enjoyable. A little bit of surprise there. But two, it gets the game over faster because I'm not trying to play a 45-minute game with my four-year-old. Like, what are, what are we doing? Like, this needs to be a 10-minute experience. And it pushes the game forward. And just that one little change made the game so much more fun. And so I think that's something else game designers can take away from this conversation is we're not talking about these massive changes, complicated things. Like a lot of times you can just switch the framing. You can switch the, the, the phrasing or you can change one little, make one little tweak and it gets the game to its completion sooner, which I don't, very few times have I played a game and everybody was like, man, that ended too fast. Shorter is always better. If it's short enough, you can play it again. I totally agree with that. You know, I, I have games with repeat times under one minute. Like, that's that's where I like to be. Um, and yeah, the monster in the water is not fun. I totally agree. Like that, that die that, 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 again, like I said, it, it, it's in the DNA of game design because it's been around for so long um, that there's always a chance that you'll die. Um, I think, I, I, I think it, that most of the ways to implement that are, are just pretty bad. Um, I have a game called Holdout where that, that, that little chance is always there. Um, Holdout is, without explaining it, it's basically poker. Um, it, it is a game that serves the role of poker in a fantasy universe. And it doesn't have the same betting system as poker. But one thing that it does have uh, sort of in common is essentially the, the draw on the river. When, when, uh, when a player is very likely to win, but one card will save the other player, this particular game goes through that window almost all the time. And everyone's just kind of okay with that. Like I have to get to the end of the game in a good state, in a good state to win. And the other guy is always going to get that one draw, but we like, we kind of know that. And he, he goes for the draw. He pulls the wrong card. I win most of the time he pulls the right card and he wins once in a while. And we all sort of like, we're okay with it. It's not like the monster in the water because we all kind of like, know that's how it's going to work. But I think that's an exceptional case. I think normally that 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 last minute reversal surprise thing, unless the odds of it happening are really well understood and the game is short enough that you can play again, uh, it's really frustrating when it happens. I'm reminded of Sid, was it Sid Jackson, who made the Civilization video games. And he was talking about how, you know, he would give percentages to the player. He would say, hey, this has an 80% chance of, of succeeding. And then even... So that's still a 20% chance of failure. 
But players would get so frustrated because they'd be like, no, this is the game's cheating. He's like, it's really not. And so he had to tell players 80%, but on the back end, it was really like 92% or something like that, just to kind of match up the psychology <laughs> because players are getting so frustrated with, with the numbers. We can't exactly do that with board games, but it is an interesting kind of psychological thing to think about. That's interesting. He was burying the odds under a lie. That's that's that because I'm not going to say whether that's good or bad, but that's terrible. Um, like, uh, no, I've, I've worked with a lot of game designers who get into the, the gotcha systems in, in uh, online gaming and they, they try to fiddle with the odds because they want them to play out the way players expect. It's, it's weird because you start up by introducing a system that's going to be really punitive and then you tweaked it so that it wasn't. Why did you introduce it to begin with? Like, why don't you just do something else? Right. That's a good question. And I don't know if he was so far into the design process where he was just like, ah, it would ship it. It'll be fine. We'll just tweak the numbers on the back end. And, and you know, and again, that was some years ago, but it, it is an interesting thing to think about. Something else I want to go back to, you were talking about your game with the dinosaurs where, where it's this constant loop, right? Where people can get in there. I tell you what, man, my friend Brad would love that game. Every time we played Super Smash Brothers, you familiar with Smash Brothers? Okay. He was always Donkey Kong. Because Donkey Kong has this ability to grab people and then he can walk around. And so what Brad would do, he would grab you and then he would jump off the edge and kill both of you. Because <laughs> yeah. he he didn't want to win. He just wanted you to lose. And that's yes. just how he played the game. And so, you know, if you have a game that has the potential for a loop to occur, there are those people out there. They're like, we're playing this for the next six hours. And <laughs> so... Anything yeah, you well, I, I think I think that knowing that there are various griefing player types yeah. means you have to engineer games to survive that, either to appeal to that and appeal to that player type only, or to uh, exclude them in some way, or to to survive their behavior. They're you know that like if if you've got that kind of spoiler in your game, if the game is robust enough, he he can do his thing and lose and not really hurt either the group or worse an individual with that. Right. But that's, that's a matter of engineering around it. I, I was lucky enough to sort of cut my teeth on magic, the gathering. And once you've written rules and cards for a CCG, everything else is easy, right? Yeah. When you understand that players can basically build their own game out of the parts you're handing them. Um, every, every, everything else is a better structure. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Great. So another thing I want to ask you about is the level of of abstraction. So give an example. For the last several years, I've been working on this football, college football-based game. And I remember one time I played with some testers and somebody said, well, hey, there's a, there's no penalties in the game. Why, why are there no penalties? I was like, well, that's like the least fun part of football. Like no one has ever, unless it's at the end of the game and your team lost, but there's a flag on the play. Like that's the only moment that anyone is really excited about a flag. And so, no, I, I abstracted that out. There are no penalties. We're just going to assume it's a clean game the entire time. And because that's fun. That, it's more fun to me. So tell me your thoughts on abstracting things out that if this was a simulation, it would need to be there because it is part of the reality. But I'm trying to make something fun, make it a game. So when you're thinking of, okay, here's the, the theme, here's the thing I'm trying to do. What are your thoughts as far as abstracting certain parts, leaving certain parts in, trying to get to the most fun? I think specifically in the football example, I would only include penalties if it was the kind of thing that players could decide to do. In other words, I mm. I am going to to do a foul here because it's going to cheat to on purpose. Me. I'm gonna right. I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna break the rules and I'm just gonna see what whether the whether the ref notices it or something like that's interesting, right? But if flags just randomly happen, like what good is that? I think generally speaking, life is not always fun, and so you're under no obligation to simulate the reality in your car in your game. Now, on the other hand. If your game more or less represents the real life systems that it's supposed to, it's easier for people to learn how to play it, for people to know what to expect. Like um, an economic game, you know, if, if you're only allowed to have a certain amount of money, how is that a game about economics? If money isn't exchangeable for other money, how is that money? Like I'm all I'm often confused by metaphors in particular games that don't seem to care about theme where they were, they told me what a thing was and then it behaved differently from that. And it made it worse than if they didn't tell me at all. Um, but like I said, reality is often no fun. We, we had a game, uh, Deadwood expansion. Deadwood's a game about making movies on a back lot. And the expansion included several little locations that you had to ride the bus to get from one place to the other. 
and the bus the bus mechanic was extremely uh, realistic. There, there, you sat at a bus stop and rolled three dice, and if you rolled one of the locations you wanted to go to, you could go there, and if you didn't, you had to keep waiting. That's just like waiting for the bus. Is it fun? Absolutely not. Like I, as a designer, I thought this is a great mechanic. It's just like waiting for the bus. But as a player, I was like, why are you doing this to me? This is the worst thing that ever happened. <laughs> yeah, I've got a similar system in a, a game I'm working on right now. It's, it's this open world where you can go, you know, all over, and it's got a bus system where as long as you've been to a location one time, you can go there again easily and for free. And originally, there was a me- mechanic, like a little mini game that you had to play to do that, to go from A to B, but I was like, this is not fun. And it's getting, it's, it's blocking players from doing the thing that they really want to do where the fun is. They want to turn the page. They want to go to the, the next area. They've already been there. And now you're like putting a, a barrier it, between them and fun. Well, get rid of that. And I've had testers go, well, it doesn't make as much sense that players can just, just go there. Like there's no cost. I was like, yeah, but that's like you're saying, yeah, riding that's the bus. just bad <laughs> feedback, right? Riding the bus is not fun. Right. I, I think like, there is no way to do an effective simulation of reality. There is going to be an abstraction at some level. So all you have to do is decide where that is. People don't have representations of reality in their heads. That's not the right. point of any of this, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, games give us that luxury of copying only the parts that are good. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and I think that's a that's a good soundbite right there. As a game designer, it's our jobs to copy parts about life that are good. Like that's that's it. That's it. All right, James, what else? What are some other things to think about, other things that you've learned personally or things that you share with other game designers that, you know, when it comes to fun? Well, that's an open-ended question. It's not bringing anything to mind. Uh, (laughs) What's something you wish you had known years ago that maybe you've learned, you know, as you've designed more and more games that you're like, oh, okay, here's a a quicker way to get to fun. Here's an easier way to do it. Here's a, here's a way to cut things out. I, the answer to that question is 400 pages long and I'm supposed to be laying it out this week. I, I'm not kidding. Like it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a tough uh, question. I, my, my joke about that, I, we did the, uh, the cheap ass games retrospective book a few years ago that contained like the rules and some example components from every game in the cheap ass catalog. It was kind of like the line in the sand that says, I'm through with this. I'm doing something else right now. Um, and that book starts with, this is the book I wish I'd had when I started my game design career. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the same place, right? This book I'm working on. It's like, I wish someone had handed me something like this 15 years ago that I wouldn't have to have fallen into so many holes and bumped my head into so many walls. It, it's just those, it's just those things. And, and again, it's, it's little things, it's little tweaks in your design process. And so I guess to kind of close things out, what would be, I don't know, just best advice you know, the number one, top three thing, whatever it is, right? Anything that comes to mind to kind of leave listeners with that'll kind of help them level up a little bit in their game design process. I don't know. I, I, I design at the simpler end of the spectrum for sure. And I believe that it's the game designer's job to do the math so the players don't have to. Hmm. Like there's nothing fun about learning how to play your game. And, and I know that there's disagreement among the community about that. Like I see plenty of games that are essentially procedural. And once someone has figured out how to get to the end, they basically feel like they've played it. And I feel like the, I'm just getting started when I when I figured that out. Hi, now, I, I, want, I know how to get to the end. It's obvious. Now, how do I get to the end with more points is, is how I want to think about games. So so yeah, it's it's more fun to, to think about winning than try to remember the rules. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think something that helped me as a game designer was to, kind of what you're saying, to realize Players already know how to play a certain number of games. They could just open the box and start playing that and get right to the fun versus having to open the box in my game and learn it. And so how can I overcome that barrier? How do I make the e the, the rules easier to learn, easier to explain, quicker? How do I cut out edge cases so players aren't having to put the cognitive load of all this extra stuff in there, abstract some things out, get to the fun as quickly as possible? And even one thing I love about games nowadays, a lot of them are like, teaching you how to play as you play. So you don't have to learn 10 pages of rules, 20 pages of rules first. You can learn two pages of rules. Now you're playing almost like a little kind of demo round or turn. And now we're getting into the the fun faster. And I think that's something else for, for people to just think about. How can you get to the fun as quickly as possible? I think it, it didn't take me long to learn this, but I've been telling people for 30 years and it's more, more is not better. Yeah. You know, I think people make their own games complicated I think, and sometimes in an attempt to differentiate them, which I think is not a good design pillar, um, 
mostly just because that's what they know how to do. And it's always better, though often harder, to take a rule away than add another one. If there's something that's not working, it, you have two possibilities. You can add a rule or you can take one out. And, you know, I think that there's a fear that if you take away too many rules, you'll wind up with nothing. But I, I've never actually seen that happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good point. But I think that's something else for new designers to realize. It is harder to cut than to add. And you really learn that the more the more you do this, because you'll get to a design challenge and it's like, okay, I can add four more rules to fix this, right? I can just keep throwing in edge cases and cards and stuff like that. But that's going to probably decrease the fun overall because it's more to think about, more to learn, less less enjoyable surprise. Like now it's surprised because you, had, you just read the rule book for five or 10 extra minutes and to figure out, oh, you can't actually do the thing you really wanted to do. That's not super enjoyable. Again, things to to think about. James, this has been excellent. Do you have anything you're talking, you're saying you're working on a book right now? If you want to tell people anything about that or. I've been working on this book for years. It was the, it was the course notes for a game design class that I taught 10 years ago. I still haven't managed to bind it up into, into a book. So I don't, I can't promise that, but I can say that my design lectures and lots of new products are at Crab Fragment Labs. That's my, uh, my new design studio. We also host a lot of the old cheap ass games, PDFs over there, but, uh, but there's good new stuff every day, including games that I'm working on right now to procrastinate working on my book. I I understand that struggle, 100, 110%. <laughs> but I'll put the I'll put links to everything in the show notes and the description on, on YouTube and whatnot so people can find that. And James, man, really appreciate your time. Thanks for everything you've contributed to the hobby over the years. My daughter wants me to thank you as well for creating. All right, her, well, thank her, her for game. enjoying the game. And of course, I'll be like the comedian in the parking lot who's like, did you see the six o'clock show or the seven thirty? What what uh, what's what edition of Kill Doctor Lucky do you play at your house? Oh, it's the newest one. I got it at Target or Walmart. Oh, far out. Good. Yeah. I, well, that is that's the best one, of ago. course. The yeah, latest yeah. one is the best. Year and a half, two years ago, um, I bought it because we were doing this mission thing at the church, and we knew we were going to have a bunch of people. And I was like, oh, let's get Kill Doctor Lucky because you can play it with a lot of folks, and it's actually more fun with more people. And my daughter was along with with that group, and um, we sat down. And, and we played it and she was like, let's play it again immediately. And then, <laughs> yes, see, that's yeah. good feedback. <laughs> and we played it like five or six times over the course of two days. And then when we got home, you know, she was like, Hey, let's play it again. I'm like, honey, it's, it's not a great game with two players. Like, I, I don't think, you know, and so, you know, she's been kind of frustrated and trying to like, get her siblings to learn. And, but, um, oh, that's great. That's yeah, great. She loves it. <laughs> but James, man, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me.